If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah 24. Isaiah chapter 24, uh, I had ambitions of covering three chapters. As Jake said, we'll only cover two. Uh, 24 and 25 will be our text this afternoon. And then next week, we will cover chapters 26 and 27, which is the end of this second section of the book of Isaiah. These chapters, Isaiah 24 through 27, are often referred to as the Isaiah Apocalypse. Um, As you read them, they remind us in many ways of the most well-known piece of apocalyptic literature, which is the book of Revelation. Um, And just as John's revelation provides a a climax and conclusion to the whole Bible, these chapters provide a a climax and conclusion to this second section of Isaiah uh, that began back in chapter 13. So chapters 13 through 23, as we've walked through them, we've noticed that they're filled with, with oracles against specific nations, 10 oracles to be exact against the nations surrounding Israel and Israel itself. But here in chapter 24, there's a shift and the devastating judgment, not just of specific nations, but of the entire earth is in view. The inhabitants of the whole earth are judged by the Lord. It's not directed towards one individual nation, but instead the inhabitants of the world are all falling underneath God's just punishment. And yet, as Isaiah has continued uh, to emphasize, a remnant remains. There's a, a faithful few who are preserved through judgment. And so in contrast to the judgment of chapter 24, we're given chapters 25 through 27, which is this multifaceted song of praise to God as the one who rules over the whole earth and who will one day triumph over all of his enemies. There are songs that easily get stuck in our heads. I don't know about you, but this happens at our house all the time. Uh, my kids will be listening to some music, and the next thing I know, I'm singing the same line from the Frozen 2 soundtrack over and over and over again. And I try to stop. I say out loud, I'm not singing that song anymore. I vow I will not repeat those words. And then 30 seconds later, I'm singing them. And the problem with earworms, as they are called, is that they're usually songs that you really don't want to sing. Uh, no offense to Frozen 2, but... Um, As I thought about that, as I thought about this song and thought about these songs that we don't want to sing, it seems to me that that sometimes the noise and the lyrics of life can also get stuck in our heads. Just sort of a a tune that's there over and over again. And often they're lyrics that we don't really want to sing. And yet we repeat those words over and over again in our minds. They can be words of worry that we can't shake. They can be lyrics of of fear. Maybe they're things that make us doubt who God is or doubt his his love for us. They can be words that make us wonder if what he has said is really true, if his plans really are perfect, if he really is going to come and make all things right. And sometimes these negative earworms get stuck in our heads and we don't want to sing them, but no matter how hard we try, they just keep repeating over and over and over again. How do you get rid of an earworm? I think one way to do it is to get a better song stuck in your head. What if you could silence all the lies and the false messages that you keep singing and instead fill your your mouth and your mind with the truth about who God is? A song of trust instead of a song of doubt. 
a song of confidence, a song of joy instead of sorrow, a song of what God has done and what he will do and who he is. Singing is a way to put off false thoughts about ourselves and about God, to to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on new and true thoughts about who God is and about who we are in Christ. And so I think that these four chapters say to us, sing the song of praise that will never cease. Don't sing those negative songs. Don't sing the false songs that fill our minds. Rather, sing the song of praise that will never cease. I don't know, but I think that'll be our same big idea next Sunday as well. Um, And so my hope this week is that we would get at least part of this song stuck in our heads a song that's true, uh, and a song that's, that's worth singing. And it's in singing this song that will never cease. It's in resting in these truths about who God is and what he will do and what he has done, that we will be transformed by the truth that's in this song. Beholding is becoming. Singing transforms who we are. Sing the song of praise that will never Cease. Now, there's no musical notations here. And so when I say sing, of course, I'm thinking about just being renewed by the truth that's in this passage. Um, we'll plan to cover chapters 24 and 25 today, Lord willing, 26 and 27 next week. You heard Jake earlier read well from Isaiah 24. And so I'm not going to read that again, but I do want to walk through some, some details. And let's put them under this heading. Chapter 24 is the song of the city of meaninglessness will be silenced. The song of the city of meaninglessness will be silenced. There is a a song that is sung not by God's people, but by those who reject the Lord. And yet that's a song that will soon die out. It's a song that will be forgotten and stuck in no one's head any longer. Uh, These 23 verses of chapter 24 tell us how the earth and its inhabitants will will one day be judged and laid waste by the Lord. Uh, Commentator Motyer says that this chapter describes the future of the city of meaninglessness, set in contrast to the eternal city of God, to the new Jerusalem, to Mount Zion that will never be moved. As Jake mentioned, a key backdrop to this chapter seems to be the flood narrative of of Genesis 6 through 9. There's references to the windows of heaven opening up in judgment, to the the everlasting covenant, to a curse in the context of wine and a vine dresser as as Noah was. And these all remind us of the way that, that God decimated the whole earth in response to the wickedness of all people and yet also how he preserved a covenant people with Noah and his family. The first three verses of chapter 24 describe a flood-like utter destruction of the whole earth and a destruction that is indiscriminate. Uh, Neither social status nor economic wealth offer any protection against the flood of God's justice. The whole earth is going to be emptied and plundered. From flood the image moves to that of drought and famine in verses 4 through 12. As you think about that, maybe you can picture um, 
dried up tree branches, or, or maybe you've seen those images of earth so dry that it's sort of cracking. That's the picture here. The whole earth withers before the Lord, especially the vineyards. And with the drying up of all the vineyards, so also the drying up of all the wine of the land. And as the wine is dried up, what we find out is that the joy of the earth is dried up. When, when Isaiah makes this connection between wine and, and joy, he's saying that the joy of the earth is thereby, it, it's described as being dependent on wine. The, the inhabitants of the earth can find no happiness unless they're drunk. I think this is a lie that we're sold in our culture, isn't it? That the people who are happy are those who are drunk. Uh, we see it in the television and the, and the mo- and movies that people who are tipsy are just, you know, they're joyful. They're happy people. And yet what about when the wine runs out? Isaiah says that when the wine's gone, so is their joy. Their joy is gone as well. Uh, I think that wine is not the only thing in view here, but rather it's any joy that's dependent on something that the world provides. A a joy whose source is in the distortion of and overindulgence in God's good gifts. You can think about relationships, food, alcohol, sex, entertainment, clothes, social gatherings, popularity, money, anything else. All dependent joy, things that are dependent just on what God gives or what he does for us, all of that kind of joy is going to die. Because one day all of these things will be dried up and the gladness of people who depend on those things will be gone because the things that they love will be gone. Matyur again, he says, to want nothing but this world is to end up with nothing but want. It's good, isn't it? To want nothing but this world is to end up with nothing but want. What's the root of this desolation? I think it's verse five. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For, why? Because they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, verse six, therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. The world is judged because uh, threefold indictment, they have transgressed the laws, they have violated the statutes, and most importantly, they have broken the everlasting covenant. Uh, This would seem at very least to refer to the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis 9. It's referred to as an everlasting covenant in Genesis 9, 16. And, and it's so tied to the earth, just as this chapter is, the, the, the curse on the, the earth. But I don't think it's wrong to encompass all the other covenants within this statement of a broken covenant. The covenants made with Adam and Abraham and Moses, and even the, the new covenant, because the result of breaking faith with God and choosing to sin is always desolation and judgment. To reject God's ways is to choose misery and death and joylessness. Well, there's further judgment described in in verses 17 through 23. And the emphasis here is that there's no escape from the divine wrath. Have you ever felt cornered? Sometimes we play tag around our house and it's inevitable that you get cornered and there's no way out. And that's sort of the picture here, that you're cornered. 
There's no way to run. Those who run away in verse 17 and 18, they fall into a pit first. And if they're able to climb out of that pit, well, then they get caught in a trap. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, because according to verses 19 and 20, the whole earth is being torn apart. That's where that flood imagery really starts to to come out. At the end of verse 18, the windows of heaven are open. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaking. The earth staggers like a drunken man. The whole earth is falling to pieces. And not only will the inhabitants of the earth be punished and confounded, but we also find that the host of heaven will as well. Remember those heavenly beings that we talked about back in chapters 13 and 14, that divine council of spiritual beings and those who had joined in the cosmic rebellion? Verses 21 through 23 tell us that they too will be thrown into prison together. It reminds us and points forward to uh, this image that John picks up in, in Revelation with the lake of fire where all those who rebel against God are cast into it. The sun and the moon worshiped as, as gods will be darkened. And we find in verse 23 that God alone will be exalted and glorified. Chapter 20. For is a chilling picture and a chilling reminder that God's judgment against sin is nothing to play with. Our God is sovereign over all nations. He's sovereign over history itself. And so when he decides that history has come to an end, nobody can stop him. We're invited to behold the unstoppable flood of God's judgment. And yet, In the midst of the judgment, the Lord of all the earth is there. And there's this glimmer of hope in verses 13 through 16. One more quote from Motyer. He was very helpful this week. He says, we hear the the stilling of the song of the world. That's in verses 7 through 12. Their song of joy ceases. The stilling of the song of the world and the rising of the song of the remnant in a collapsing world the people whose joy is the Lord are secure. In a collapsing world, this world that's falling apart, whose joy is secure? Those who are the the people of God. Look at this secure joy in verses 24, chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory, to the righteous one. Just as Noah and his family were preserved in the midst of the flood, there are children of God who will be rescued and preserved and who will give glory to God, the righteous one. These chapters, 24 through 27, more than any others in the book of Isaiah, emphasize the glory of God. I should say up to this point more than any others. Uh, And in that, we're reminded that if we are to be saved from the flood of God's wrath and from the withering heat of his righteous judgment against our sin, it's going to be because he alone has rescued us. And therefore, he alone deserves glory. The good news of the gospel is not that we are good. And it's not that God looks past our sin. The good news of the gospel is that God is good and that he fully deals with our sin.
The good news is that the Lord Almighty has sent a Savior in the righteous person, Jesus Christ, to be just and the justifier of all who will repent and believe. From the east to the coastlands to the ends of the earth, anyone and everyone can be saved because of what God has done in Christ, who lived a perfect life of righteousness and died for the sins of the world. Friends, apart from Jesus, you stand before the tidal wave of God's judgment and the withering fire of his wrath. And there is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. But in Christ, you can be saved. Saved so that your song will never be silenced, but we will praise God for all eternity for what he has done. That kind of salvation should compel us to sing and to praise the Lord, not only on that day to come, but but in this day. And the song of the glory of God that's referenced in chapter 24, verses 13 through 16, is I believe what's detailed in the songs and the shouts of chapters 25 through 27. So this song is just alluded to in chapter 24, and then we get the detail of what they actually were singing in chapters 25 through 27. And so we might say that these songs teach us to sing with God's people through all generations, knowing this, the song of the city of God will never be silenced. So our first idea is that this this city of meaninglessness, that that song is going to cease. But the song of the city of God will never be silenced. The song of the city of God will never be silenced. Well, what are the contents of this song? I'll be honest, David Jackman outlined it so well that I just stole his headings. Um, So these are not original to me. Uh, He says of chapters 25 and 26 in particular that we are to praise God for his mighty deeds, his gracious rescue, his total victory, his safe stronghold, and his personal care. We're going to go over those. So if you were trying to write them down and didn't get them, I'll repeat them. Uh, This, we're going to look just at the first three uh, today found in chapter 25. And so I want to read chapter 25 and think this is, this is part of that song, just 12 verses. But look at chapter 25 and let's, let's read this. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of food full of morrow, of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. 
We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. As we think about this city of God and the song that will never be silenced, it's a song that we're to sing along with. And so we notice first, we are to praise God for his mighty deeds. Praise God for his mighty deeds. That's verses one through five. Did you notice the shift in tone from chapter 24 to 25? It's pretty clear. It moves to this, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. It sounds more like uh, something from the psalmist. It's, it doesn't sound like something Isaiah has typically written. But in, in that verse, the writer announces that he's going to praise God for all the wonderful things he's done, for all of his faithful and sure plans that have come to fruition in the present. It's, it's a very personal act of worship. Though the things that he's praising God for are, are very large and, and far-reaching, they're not just personal blessings, but they're huge things. The mighty deeds he's praising God for in verses 2 through 3 are that he judges the nations. Praise God for his mighty deeds. Praise him that he judges the nations. The destruction of chapter 24, the laying waste of the cities that rebel against the Lord, is said to be a wonderful thing that God's people praise him for. There's a balance here, a balance of grace and of the fact that God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. Yet, the destruction of the city of meaninglessness and of all who would revolt against the rule of King Jesus is something that we can and that we will praise God for. Verse 3 even seems to say that, that the condemned and the destroyed nations will glorify the Lord for his judgment. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Paul reminds us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The whole earth will exalt the Lord as the one who is per- whose perfect and just and merciful and eternal plan has come about. On the other side of that, we could also say that verse 3 may indicate that this hint that, that the, the hope that the nations who witness God's judgment may turn and glorify him. They may see the judgment and say, we will now come and we will fear him and glorify him alone. I don't know about you, but I feel like the judgment of the nations is a complicated thing to praise God for. It's hard to think about the destruction that's described there and to say that I'm going to worship God for that. It's difficult. Often I think God's mighty deeds are hard to fully understand. We're not sure why he does the things that he does, why he acts the way that he acts. We're confused. We sometimes even doubt his wisdom. But in faith, we can praise God for all of his mighty deeds and we can praise him for his unchanging character. We might wrestle with him in confusing and distressing nights or in frustrating and complicated situations. We might question him. We might push against him. But in the end, I think we'll all limp away like Jacob as believing children of the dislocated hip limping, but seeing a little bit more clearly that he's in charge and he knows what he's doing. 
and we can worship him even in the confusing things. It's not only the judgment of the nations that is seen as a mighty deed, but in verses four to five, we see that the mighty deed that he's worshiped for is that he shelters the needy. He shelters the needy. You might not think of the sheltering of the needy as a mighty deed. But if you've ever tried to shelter the needy, then you start to realize that's a mighty deed. It seems like a simple task, doesn't it? Sheltering and protecting, or sheltering and protecting the, the needy. And yet think about how inevitable the crushing of the poor and of those in distress seems to be. Think about wars or natural disasters or financial crises. Who's most at risk? It's the poor. It's those in distress. If a, if a global pandemic hits our world, who's going to be most affected? The poor. When famine strikes a nation, who is most affected? It's the poor and the distressed. Who is homeless when a company downsizes and people lose their jobs? It's the people that were already poor to begin with. What if God could be a stronghold even for them? What if, what if he could shield the distress from the storm and the heat of the ruthless who would overwhelm them? Wouldn't that be amazing? What if God could rescue and shelter all the needy? That'd be a mighty deed, wouldn't it? And that's what he's worshiped for here. And what if God could take we who are spiritually bankrupt and impoverished and save us? from the wrath to come? What if Jesus could die and rise again and absorb the full force of the judgment against us and absorb the full force of all the evil that would burn us up? What if Jesus could shelter we who are needy for all eternity? Would that be a mighty deed? It would be. It'd be the mightiest of deeds. And we would rightly say, Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. The song of the city of God is a song for the mighty deeds of God, the way that he judges the nations, the way that he shelters the needy. This song also tells us to praise God for his gracious rescue. Praise God for his gracious rescue. I tried to come up with a different phrase and Man, gracious rescue just fits this part. Verses uh, six through nine. It's a gracious rescue from death. In verse seven, death is, is described as covering, as, as a covering or a veil that's, that's cast over every person because we will all die. No one knows when or how, but we will all die. It's a veil that covers us all. And yet for we who believe in the resurrected Jesus, death is a defeated foe. According to verse 8, God in Christ has already and one day will fully swallow death. Isn't that an amazing phrase? He will swallow up, verse 7, on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. What is that veil? What is that covering? Verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. 
You have to tell me a good illustration for that. I couldn't come up with one. But I just this just sort of a picture of either an ocean that's just draining and swallowed up, or maybe just think about some giant monster swallowing something. Jesus is going to swallow up death forever. What an amazing thing that Jesus, who was swallowed up by the tomb, has risen from the grave, and by rising, he has swallowed death itself. This is the rescue that God has brought us. But here's the wonderful thing about Jesus, is it's a gracious rescue from death. Because he not only saves us from death, but then what does he do in verse 8? He wipes away every tear from our eyes. And he wipes away all the reproach and the shame from our faces. The rescue from death is, is so wonderful because the darkness of death is so deep. The sorrow and the tears and the sin of this broken world, they just, they lay us low so often. We've all wept at death, whether it's physical death of someone that we love or just the small deaths that we face every day, the the pain and the difficulty of this dying world. We've all wept. We've all cried. We've all been ashamed. What a wonderful thought then that God not only will, will rescue us from death, but then he comes and he wipes away our tears. Gracious rescue. Not just a rescue, but a gracious rescue. How good God is. This is what we're waiting for. Verse 9 says that this is what we will rejoice in. It's a joy that is a joy in, in the everlasting life that we're going to have through Jesus. We're waiting for it. And as you know, um, rejoicing is always linked with food. God has not only rescued us from, from death, but he's rescued us to feasting. Go back to verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Man, you can see where John knew the book of Isaiah. And as you read through Revelation, he's uh, joyfully plundering all of Isaiah's beautiful passages. On the last day, we're told that God is going to spread a table for us. Wine is a poor source of joy, but in the Bible, it sure seems to be a good aid in rejoicing. And just as Jesus did at the wedding in Cana, he's going to provide the finest of wine on the final day. And just as he provided food for the 5,000, he's going to fill our plates to overflowing on the last day. And while we'll be thankful for the feast, we're also going to know that it is truly Christ whose flesh we eat, whose blood we drink, that he is the source of our everlasting joy and praise. Here's the beauty of this feast. It's never going to be interrupted. It will never cease. It will never end because invaders come in, because war breaks out, because we're told the last thing that we praise God for in verses 10 through 12 is we praise God for total victory. Praise God for total victory. In verses 10 through 12, the destruction of Moab is, is referenced. 
Moab, if you remember, we saw this back in chapters 15 and 16. They had this chance to come and to seek refuge in Zion, but they, they rejected it. And they are held forth as an example of human resistance and human pride. And we're told that they will be completely decimated. They will be wiped out. Their walls will be brought down. They will be cast low. They will be, they, they will, he will bring down their walls. They will be laid low, cast to the ground, to the dust never to rise again. We're reminded that on the last day, all human pride will be brought to the dust and will never be built up again. There will be no more towers of Babel. There will be no more Babylons, no more rebellion, no more pompous pride. As we sing all, everything from pole to pole will be prayer and praise to God alone. And not just the pride of the nations, but your pride. And my pride will never struggle with pride ever again. We will not fight the impulse to seek praise for ourselves, to seek credit for our small victories, but we will forever fulfill our chief end, our primary purpose of glorifying God alone and enjoying him forever. That's what we will do for all eternity. As verse nine says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is a day that we are longing for when we will sing this song, a song of praising God for his his mighty deeds, of of praising him for his, his gracious rescue, of praising him for his total victory. Right now, maybe you can hear this song of chapter 25. Maybe your heart's singing it. Maybe you were singing it this week. Maybe you came in singing this song. For others, maybe some other tune is kind of crowding it out. Some other worship is happening. Some other um, melody is just sort of filling your mind. The thought of singing victory in Jesus to close this service doesn't feel real exciting. Both places are acceptable places to be in for the follower of Jesus. You can be filled to the brim with praise to God for all these things, and you can be totally confused and not sure what to say. That's fine. But from both places, I think we're invited still to sing the song of praise that will never cease. We might sing it because it's overflowing out of our hearts, or we might need to pray that our hearts would catch up with our lips as we sing it. So both are acceptable. Don't think that you have to fake it and pretend like you understand all of this because we don't. But the more we sing this song, the more we allow these words to renew our minds and to fill us, then the more that we will sing this song on a regular basis, the more it's going to push out the destructive earworms that fill our days and fill our minds. So I invite you to meditate on these things, on God's mighty works on his gracious rescue, and on his total victory. And let's do it knowing that wherever we're at now, that one day we're going to sing this without any reservations, and we're going to sing it for all time. It's a song of praise that will never cease.